The Way Out Podcast, episode 176. You know, once I smoked for the first time, I had that experience that everybody in recovery talks about, that sort of moment of epiphany mm-hmm. where, you're, where you're like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. I didn't even know it, you know? So I had that experience and being an addict, having an addict brain, an addict personality, an addict mind, I immediately made that my obsession right there, you know, seventh grade, a little kid. I was having this uh, traumatic experience that I didn't know I was having. I, I was having a terrible nightmare that I didn't have words for. And when I found the drugs and alcohol, you know, when I found the substances, it gave me everything that I could possibly, it was an instant, immediate relief. And, you know, I didn't have the tools for understanding, oh, wait, this is the big picture. These are the substances. This is the addiction. This is how the brain works. This is your life course. This is where you're going to crash and burn in a few years. I had none of that information. So I just did what was in front of me. And what was in front of me was the guy next door had some weed uh, and the other guy had some Coke and the other guy had some booze and we were getting together. And that was going to become my entire life at seventh, seventh grade. If you look at you ever see, you look at a little, they look like infants. Buddhism offers us a way to go into what is, you know, the mechanism of addiction, which is attachment. And I feel that attachment or rather addiction is attachment gone wild. It's the same mechanism. It's just a more extreme and severe version of it. It's not just addicts that can teach me something. It's addicts that will truly understand me. I can never forget that I'm an addict and I may very easily delude myself into thinking that I'm safe and I'm not safe and then I wind up in my addiction again. So somehow I have to be able to be this like Zen master within myself with however many years sober. I gotta be sober a while to do this. I gotta do some therapy. I gotta do some work around childhood issues. You know, I have to deal with my brain chemistry, maybe or maybe not. I need medication. I definitely need a fitness program. I I definitely need good nutrition. I definitely need to let go of as many addictive substances as possible. As possible. Do you know what I mean? And I'm going to get into these kinds of things and I'm going to start to transcend that initial thing. But I'm going to include the things that really are vital to my spirituality and my recovery. But I'm never going to graduate. Here's the problem. If I graduate... You can tell, I go like this, hey guys, I'm sober now, 23 years, I've done my Buddhism, and I don't need that AA no more because I got the Buddha. Now the Buddha, you know, he's real serene. You look at him right there, he's real serene. I'm, I'm just like that. Right? I picture a cowboy Buddhist now with that voice. <laughs> I love it. That needs to be a cartoon. But basically, yeah. if you if you forget who you are, it's very, very easy for the addict mind, which is cunning, baffling, and powerful, to come uh, come up with a good reason to put you in a slippery situation. The ability to pause right there and to go right to that feeling and embody that feeling and to put your hand right on your heart. You know, we could do it right now. I'll invite you guys to try this with me if you want. You just put your hand right on your heart and you say the thing that you want to hear most from other people. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. 
The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's allrecoveryrings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. Along with Jason, I'm Charlie, and this week we've got an interview for the ages with Darren Littlejohn, the author of The 12-Step Buddhist. Darren takes us on an often wild, sometimes humorous, and incredibly enlightening ride as he waxes poetic on 12-Step Recovery the value of integrating Buddhist practices into our recoveries, all the while sprinkling in his 20-plus years of experience, strength, and hope earned along the way of his recovery journey. Darren conjures up absolute magic when we gave him the opportunity to stream his spiritual consciousness with us. We found spiritual truth galore and a whole heck of a lot more as we explored the miraculous mind of the 12-step Buddhist. So listen up. We're so very happy to have you on the show to share not only your experience, strength, and hope with our audience, but also about uh, the 12-step Buddhist. And a brand new edition of the book just came out, so we'll talk about that. And I really am excited to explore how Buddhism can enhance 12-step recovery and recovery in general. So why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out Podcast audience, and we'll get started. Hello, Way Out Podcasters. My name is Darren, and I am an addict. Darren, why don't you share a little bit about your recovery journey? You had a you had a couple of different pursuits in high school, school, maybe even in middle school. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what your passion was there in middle school and a little bit about your recovery journey. Well, I didn't have much passion for anything. I mean, I really grew up in uh, in a in what's called an adverse childhood experience, based on research for my uh, for this book. I've actually done two this year. Um, 
and I did this 10 year anniversary edition and uh, knowing that I was doing this other book, compassionate recovery right after it. So it was, it's kind of hard to talk about the journey without talking about both or, or the whole thing, you know, but basically um, I, in junior high school, which we middle school, junior high, you know, seventh grade um, going into eighth grade, seventh grade was the last grade that I completed um, before college actually. And I went, once I found drugs um, and, you know, alcohol was a part of it at the time, but it was more like what you could steal from your parents, liquor supply or shoulder tap at the local uh, 7-Eleven, you know, but, you know, we weren't carrying around booze with us, but we were always carrying around weed and everything else we could, you know, um, in every form that we could get our hands on it back then, you know, in the 70s. Um, but I, you know, once I smoked for the first time, I had that experience that everybody in recovery talks about, that sort of moment of epiphany mm. where, you're, where you're like, oh, my God, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. I didn't even know it, you know. So I had that experience and being an addict, having an addict brain, an addict personality, an addict mind, I immediately made that my obsession right there, you know, seventh grade, a little kid, find some weed. And, you know, they're smoking it and doing a lot of stuff real early now these days. You know, kids are having sex from like, you know, maybe even uh, – a few years before for that, you know, like fifth and sixth grade, even that sort of thing. So things are, th things are different now than they were when I was a kid. Uh, I think maybe a little worse in some respects, but you know, I was having this uh, traumatic experience that I didn't know I was having. I, I was having a terrible nightmare that I didn't have words for. And when I found the drugs and alcohol, you know, when I found the substances, it gave me everything that I could possibly, it was an instant immediate relief and you know when you have the tools for understanding oh wait this is the big picture these are the substances this is the addiction this is how the brain works this is your life course this is where you're going to crash and burn in a few years i had none of that information so i just did what was in front of me what was in front of me was the guy next door had some weed uh, and the other guy had some coke and the other guy had some booze and we were getting together and that was going to become my entire life at seventh Seventh grade, if you look at you ever see, you look at a little, they look like infants. They do, they do, there yeah. and they do absolutely, they look like babies. And I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine the self love and the self compassion that I have today coming into play, you know, uh, as a kid trying to solve that pain, you know, trying to heal that pain with whatever you could, whatever I could find, right. Absolutely. And so many of us can identify, Darren, with not only that magical experience, but coming out of a childhood that has those adverse childhood experiences or aces. It, we've talked about aces quite a bit on this show. Oh, on this oh you have? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. So our audience should be pretty familiar with those. But there, uh, And we'll put a link again to uh, on the SAMHSA uh, website that allows you to sort of self- assess uh, if you've experienced ACEs in your own life. So if you're listening to this right now, check the show notes and I'll have a great self-assessment tool uh, that will identify uh, how many ACEs you've had in your own uh, childhood 
and the great context to bring in those aces allow in in my mind allow for a pathway to that self-compassion that self-forgiveness that self-love uh, and realizing that you know we often come from very difficult circumstances and right. as you spoke to darren we don't have the tools at, well at it's also a good it's also a good barometer right because we it's amazing the things that we can get used to and normalize in our lives. Um, what's totally fucked up crazy to someone uh, seems normal to us. And doing that ACE test really uh, puts you in touch with the reality of your situation, you know, and, and that you need to address it or, you know, well, you know, this is a, this is a funny thing. I've been doing this since 1984. That's the first time I got sober in 1984. I was 22 years old. And I'm 57 now. I know I don't look it. I do a lot of yoga. <laughs> but, um, you know, the thing is, uh, um, all of this is is made clear. Is made clear. There's a, you know, we talk about in recovery having a moment of clear a clarity. We stood at the turning point. <laughs> I never knew. And as we talked about it, and and now when I look back. And I've done, I don't know, you guys, maybe 25, 30 years of therapy, probably, probably more, probably 30 years of therapy. Right. Since this, you know, and I go weekly, but you know, we never touch this. We never put our finger on this. And this is the, this is the, the, the pulsing nerve, the raw. I had a guy in AA tell me one time and Darren, you're like a raw nerve. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, that thing has been like kind of severed and is bleeding and, and, and you got this going on in your brain with this fight or flight, like stress level, uh, it's firing 24 hours a day. Your brain thinks you're being chased by, you know, who knows, uh, lions and bears or something, you know, right. and you're in this state of stress and you're always moving forward to try to compulsively, um, grab anything that you can to put it in your system to somehow manage and cope with the, well, the, the, the suffering really, the struggle. Right. right. And that's that PSD. I, I relate to that, to that PTSD response that's right. sort of constantly active in many of us who've had those adverse childhood experiences. We're, we're always at like a level seven or eight, you know, that's like level, our fire alarm is going off and there's not even, you know, there's no smoke anywhere, but <laughs> you know, this is a fascinating thing that the triggers, which, you know, Nora Volko and the uh, uh, National Institutes of Health and all of the work, you know, there's a lot of criticism and we could talk for hours. I, I've covered it in this book and in the next book, too. I've, t I've talked about all these issues, you know, that are going on, how we define addiction and recovery now and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, some people will say, hey, well, it's not a disease. It's a blah, 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 this and that. And, and, and honestly... You know, um, the definition of disease, you know, is pretty straightforward and pretty simple, and it doesn't have to meet very much medical criteria. It's just basically an illness, and I have an illness, okay? And in my brain, it, it, if my brain says go, it's going. All the systems are go. The lights are green, and the neurosynaptic connections are firing up, and that means go to your drug of choice. That means grow to your blown-out um let's call it a non-coping mechanism, right? You know, like I'm just going to have, I'm going to have an emotion. That emotion is going to be a total blowout in my system 
I'm going to have a meltdown. I'm going to do and say things that lead me to feel what? Oh, more shame. Right. Oh, and then what? I'm going to use. Why? Because I can't tolerate, as we say in the AA literature, the intolerable consciousness of our reality. Can't tolerate being in my body. That's right. The restlessness, irritability, and discontent. Restlessness, irritability, and discontent. Yeah, man. And trauma and personality disorders and substance abuse and co-occurring mental illness. And keep on going, you know. So, hey, man, I look back at, you know, seventh grade, little fresh-faced little baby boy sitting (laughs) there with his little weed, smoking his joint, drinking his Seagram 7 and Coke. You know what I mean? Instead of going to school. And I'm like, damn, damn. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Can I go back to that little, can I walk up? What would you do right now if you could walk up to the little you? Right. You put, you you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, like you said, I didn't know that there was, that this stuff takes an ugly turn on you down the road. Nobody warned me about that. They just said, this will make you feel better. And it did. You know, it was like finding the escape pod in the spaceship that's on fire, you know? I think if each one of us asked ourselves that (laughs) as we progress through our recovery, we'd have a radically different response to ourselves than we did when, as we were going through what we were going through. I can tell you unequivocally my response to my younger middle school self who had discovered drugs and alcohol and believed it was the magical elixir that unlocked everything that I ever wanted to be. And 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 everything I didn't want to be vanished all mm. at the same time because of this magical elixir, right? Yeah. And anytime I didn't have it in my body, I couldn't stand to be within my own skin. Now, let's I couldn't stand that. that. Let's talk about that for a second, okay? Because I've had a tendency. I don't put this in the. I want to kind of put this in the right way. There's a thing called the Stockholm syndrome. Okay, maybe going down a weird direction here, you guys. I'm just let's saying. Go. But let's we see what happens. This is a weird. way out. Who knows? Anything can happen. <laughs> so, it, 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 if I'm trying to blot out the intolerable. Uh, consciousness of my reality and uh, I just simply can't and then you hand me some you know pill pill or or substance of some kind and I feel magic honestly in the Stockholm in the Stockholm syndrome what I would do in in joining a cult what I would do what you would do to me if you brought me into I don't know let's just say Scientology or something you know you come in we don't want you to talk to your folks we don't want you to talk to your old uh, old friends, and and we don't want you to. Um, in fact, we're going to give you a new name. We're going to let's put on some different clothes. Let's strip you of all the possible things that you can identify with as what you know is as you. Okay, and then what happens? And and when you join the cult, this is a kind of a weird direction, but you'll get my point. <laughs> is that you later jump ship on who you were, and you become one of the pod people, right? You become like. My name is Lotus Blossom, and I do I no longer feel anger. Praise to the guru. Where do we give our money? You know, so you're going in with this sort of like identification then with your captor. That's the Stockholm syndrome, right? Absolutely. So you become like I'm Patty Hearst. Nobody on here is going to know Patty Hearst, but when I was a kid <laughs> in the 70s, 
we had this millionaire heiress of the newspaper empire, the Hearst Foundation, and she was bored with daddy's money and decided to hang out with some bad guys and wound up carrying a, you know, what an AR-15 or something, whatever it was, into the bank and actually doing a robbery. And we caught that on video. The news caught it on video and they and the world saw the Stockholm syndrome for the first time. How does somebody join their captors? How do they say, oh, you you took me hostage. Now I'm one of you. You took me hostage. You are now my leader. Now I'm a champion for your cause. Well, see, this is what I did for with drugs and alcohol, isn't it? You know what I mean? I sold out who I was. I didn't know I was going here, you guys, but this is a good this is a good line of thinking. Okay. I sold out who I was. Yeah. My mom, my dad, my identity, my feelings, my values, who my sense of stuff. I sold it all out to join my captor. My captor was the drugs and alcohol, right? You know, but when I go um into an experience where you tell me, um, hey Darren. That drugs and alcohol that you used to do there, you know what? That's actually killing you. That's part of your addiction. That's part of your disease. No, that magic is poison. Don't take that magic anymore, dummy. It's not magic. It's poison. You're also going to do a little Stockholm Syndrome thing right there. And you're going to turn on yourself and you're going to sell yourself out. You're going to sell out the part of yourself that's the inner addict. And you're going to say, hey, I'm no longer an addict. Drugs are bad. I'm an AA now. Drugs are bad. And- Sobriety is good, and I'm one of you now. And you're going to do another role of who you are into the Stockholm syndrome of AA. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying here's the dynamic. It's like fire. It can be a tool that can be used for to burn you or 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 or, you know feed you right. You know, cook your meals. So basically, this is all I'm saying is that if we sell out, here's where the magic was. Uh, No more magic for you. Go in the meeting, sit on your hands. Do your steps, you know, work with your sponsor, do your stuff until you feel okay. And then, all right, if you're not happy after 90 days, we'll refund your misery, right? Right. But what we miss there is that there really is magic. See, the first day, now this is kind of really my point, and thank you for bearing with me. The first day that I went to treatment in 1984, I went straight to step 11. Maybe it was at eye level, but I was sitting there in the treatment center room and it says, having had a conscious contact, having had a spiritual experience, God as you understand God, prayer and meditation. And I said, wow, man, yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) I want that. Yeah, for sure. You know, but I wanted the magic, you guys. And that's what I kind of want to, that's what I kind of want to emphasize here. Okay. So there's got to be a way that we don't, because here, look, I did this too. Tell me if you guys think this is weird. I did this too. I relapsed with 10 years sober, okay? And so then, you, when did, so let's stop you there. When did you yeah. get sober the first time? How old were December, you? December. The first time I got sober was October 19th, 1984. I was okay. uh, 22 years old. Okay. And I and stayed sober stayed, for a, a decade. A decade. So yeah. which, is, which is no small feat at 22 years old. So at no. 32 years old, you relapse. What happened? At 32 years old, what happened for me and this goes down now. This one will take your podcast way down. In we're way out. We're gonna go way, way out because what I did, <laughs> and I have a lot to say about this. So you can, you know, you can, you can stop me if you need to. Uh, but I, I did what Bill Wilson did in in Pass It On, and in back in the in the late fifties, early sixties, LSD was used by everyone, right? Everybody, judges, senators, Rock Hudson, all of your. Hollywood people, you know, everybody was using LSD before it became illegal, before the before the 60s. 
everybody was using LSD. And, and the people in, in AA, you know, were looking to enhance a spiritual experience. And they, you know, started, you know, experimenting with LSD. And Bill Wilson obviously had said that, you know, he wanted to have people use this for their recovery. Well, look, um, you know, fast forward, uh, how many years late, later is that from, from when that book, maybe that was the late 50s, right? You know, this stuff all became illegal and it became a, a, a propagandized and, and all this kind of a thing. A controlled substance. Right. And the thing is that, because we don't understand it, right? The thing is that I thought that was a cool idea. So what happened with me is I was 10 years sober. I was in, <laughs> in Denton, Texas. It's a little bit north of, of Dallas. And um, I was up there to study jazz. And um, I mean, I had to do a, a good geographic and good addict form. I was just a few weeks from finishing my master's thesis in research psychology in Long Beach, California. And I decided that it was immediately necessary to move across the country to Dallas, Texas, because that's what we do. And I thought I was in pretty good shape when I got there. And I found out that you could get pure LSD there in Denton, <laughs> Texas. Mm -hmm. And I took it and um, I was kind of, it was kind of okay, except that the thing is I kind of, I didn't really have the tools that I, that I, that I have today that I would use for introspection and for guidance and a lot of the Buddhist tools and a lot of these kinds of things. This is a really big topic, but there's ways that you can actually use that kind of thing properly. And I didn't have those tools. So I wound up just kind of going, yeah, I fell back to um, drugs and alcohol. And, 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 and what happened there with 10 years sober was that, you know, the stuff was 10 years stronger i mean they really know how to engineer it and it's more potent and i'm older and i pick up and start using at the same rate as if i'm smoking mm -hmm. some ragweed from my seventh grade you know and mm -hmm. i start smoking this stuff that's been engineered by what nasa or something i don't know it blows <laughs> your brain out you take one hit and you're in Absolutely. another dimension you can't Absolutely. even think straight for a week and this stuff i'm using it like i was consuming it at the rate and level that I did when I was, you know, 10 years earlier. So I got really fucked up and I wound up, you know, smoking meth out of a light bulb and taking a bunch of stuff that I didn't know doing MDMA and these, and, and these things, honestly, no, you, you know, I don't want to go down too far of, of a rabbit hole, but I, I, I do have a lot of new information. And I did write about this in this 12 step Buddhist 10 year anniversary edition about this sort of new resurgence in research of these formerly, well, currently still controlled substances as part of an enhancement to the recovery process. That's a whole topic, which is a very, very big, very hot topic right now. Um, but anyways, that's what I was trying to do in, in 1994. I was trying to have a spiritual experience facilitated by LSD. And I, I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the teachers. I didn't have the context and it just kind of got me depressed and I wound up going right back into drinking and all that stuff. In other words, that whole magic thing, I kind of gave up on the magic project and wound up right. just in the whole like be depressed and, and drink project. Do you know what and I mean? You truly did pick up right where you left off. Right. Well, and well, that's it was the actually progression, worse. isn't it? Right. You know, it was like actually worse. Yeah. It's magic in the beginning, and then it takes an ugly turn right. at some point. No matter what chemicals you're using, it it does this. Um, if if you're you know truly addicted, because that's like when we lose that control and we just use it so excessively that it changes our brain's chemistry basically, and how our we don't 
handle it the same way as other people. But yeah, man, I, I hear you. That sounds legit to me. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea of like LSD enhancing spiritual experience. Uh, yeah. Look, there's. I, I, I found it kind of funny. They're using, about it. but they're using psychedelics even today. Yeah. To, um, ibogaine, uh, right, and and, yeah. uh, and 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 other psychedelics as as a method of uh, uh treatment. Right. No, they are, and that's a whole yeah. that's that's a whole big topic. In fact, um, I am going to write a whole book on this um i realized as i did <clears throat> the 10-year anniversary for the 12-step buddhist that was probably one of the biggest pieces of new information to add is talking about this i call it psychedelic sobriety um and then and i've even got a podcast who has uh, about eight years off heroin eight years off of heroin and she microdoses lsd i know another guy who's a uh, similar story so there's a lot of these. Um, in fact, there's a group in San Diego now called, I think it's called Psychedelic 12-Step. And on, 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 honestly, you know, the, there's a lot to be said about this topic. But it, here's the thing. You, you, there's guys in the meeting that have no time sober that are going down to Mexico. You know, I'm in San Diego area, so Mexico's right next door. And they're running down to Mexico to do an ibogaine or an ayahuasca ceremony or something like that. You know, they got no time clean. There's no re repair that's been done of the brain. There's no repair of the spiritual, the psychic, you know, the relationships. It's just like you're right in the middle of detoxing and you're going to run to Mexico and do a big ayahuasca ceremony. It's not really, I think... Personally, there's no expertise on this right now. It's all pretty much, you know, however people are kind of organically doing it. But I think that's a mistake. I think that you probably shouldn't do your your kind of journey like that until you probably got about a decade sober and a lot of therapy and a lot of stability and then go deeper into your spiritual journey. I do not think it's safe or recommended when you're trying to get sober to use drugs as you're getting sober, but I could be wrong and I don't want to misspeak on what could be right for other people. If you're dying of heroin, I'd rather have you do an ayahuasca ceremony and come back and maybe even get a little harm reduction going, even a little bit more clean time and a little bit less destruction. I'd rather see you do that than lose you, you know, but I'm not going to tell newcomers in an AA meeting, oh, by the way, I'm uh, doing my ayahuasca and it's a good right. idea for you. No, I'm not going to do that because yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm mentally very much a badass. I mean, I'm mentally, I'm very, very, very strong and very experienced. I've been Buddhist a long time. When I go down a journey, man, I mean, I can do dream yoga. I can sit in here and kind of deal with whatever demons arise. Well, shit. How are you going to do that when you just walked in the door and you're not even sober yet? You can't manage any of that stuff. So personally, getting sober and doing this stuff to me, there's a lot of discussion that needs to be, to be had. But for me, what I tried to do, to bring it back around to the relapse, what I tried to do, interestingly enough, is similar the self-medication that I did in seventh grade trying to cope with my pain and distress I didn't know I was self-medicating, you know, trying to heal my wounds with the LSD at 10 years sober. Also another version of the same thing. You know, it's like, there is something there. There is something to it. You know, you, you, you should be honest if you think about what you're doing. And, uh, and this goes into another topic that I've been thinking quite a bit about what is sobriety, what is addiction and what is sobriety? 
because we're simultaneously, yes, I didn't drink alcohol or do all these other things and, and so on and so forth. But yes, I'm still functioning as an addict 24 seven. Hmm. I'm still compulsively doing and thinking and ingesting different kinds of things. So really where is my ultimate, ultimately where is my sobriety? Is it in arresting the addict impulse so that I can sit in attachment free Zen meditation? So I can just sit and be at peace and at one with my experience, whether it's like, you know, like they say, you're swallowing a ball of hot lead. That's how you practice Zen. You practice Zen with the seriousness that your hair is on fire, but you're just sitting still. You're doing nothing. You're just being right there. So I'm going to be right in that moment. I'm going to fully experience my moment, regardless of what it is. It could be suffering. It could be bliss, whatever. But I'm going to be in that moment in a non-attached, non-dual space Oh, that's a pretty chill spot to be in. That's pretty good. I guess I can call that. I guess I can call that non-attachment for a while. But other than that, man, if I'm not in that space and I'm not doing that practice really diligently, like a monk, really diligently, 24 hours a day, really watching my thoughts, really watching my mind, having the benefit of a teacher, having the benefit of a sangha, a spiritual community. If I'm not involved in that rigorous discipline. Mm. I'm kind of an addict 24-7 in everything I do because my go system goes, go. I don't care if it's an Oreo. 100%. A girl. What it is. 100%. So I ask, you know, I'm a kind of a crazy, you know, I'm kind of a weird outlier kind of guy in recovery. I'm sort of on the edge of the whole, you know, frontier of it, you know, and I talk about this psychedelic sobriety as a way to enhance your experience or to jumpstart your experience. Now, people will come up to me and they'll say, well, hey, that sounds like a good idea for me. And I go, mm, it isn't <laughs> probably. And I don't recommend that you do it. And I don't think that you should do it. If you do it, I support you. But you really got to think really, really, really carefully about these things because you are an addict. And if it makes you feel good at all, you will become addicted to it. There is no question. Right. You have to know that about yourself. That's been right? my experience. That's been my experience. I do not, <laughs> as it says in the AA literature, you know, we, uh, we, we learn, and my sponsor said this to me probably in the 80s. He goes, well, it says that we, never, we can never use alcohol safely in any form at all. Well, in any form at all, the way he described it was, yeah, any other form, any kind of substance, mm -hmm. any kind of, and we know also about addiction, you know, that it can be an event, um, substance, process, or person, right? Absolutely. It, it could be it, a behavior. It, it can be, not, right? It's not so simple if you're a sex addict. And I'm not a sex addict, but I have known many, you know, people who have food issues, um, things like this, you know, these things, you know, it's not so cut and dried. Where is sobriety for me if I'm in Al-Anon? How many days sober do I have? What's my clean date that I'm so, you know, fucking proud of if I'm an Al-Anon and I'm five, seven years into my Al-Anon recovery and I wind up, I don't know, looking through my husband's phone book to see if he's talking yep. to the dealer or something. That becomes a slip. That becomes not right. sobriety behavior in Al-Anon, right. but... Do I no longer have five years of sobriety in Al-Anon? So when you really start to philosophically start to tease apart and look at what is sobriety, 
what is clean time and what is addiction? And this is as I've been working on for this book, Compassionate Recovery. I've been thinking about this for the past two and a half years, you know, and, you know, basically um, you can start to uh, really get into some interesting area when you start to look at the definitions. Well, what do we really mean by sobriety? Are you now here's the thing you want to be careful. You don't want the addict part of your brain to go, yeah, Darren, you know, you're not really, you're kind of compulsive about your emotions. I mean, you're not really sober. You might as well have a drink. Right. You don't want, to, an, you don't want to use it as an alibi, but ultimately right. the longer I'm sober, the more I realize, right, that sobriety and recovery are uh, much more of a fluid thing. It's, it's very black and white from a drug and alcohol perspective. I don't drink. Right. I'm sober. I don't do drugs. I'm clean. Right. It's pretty black and white. Right. But what if I eat a half a bag of Hershey kisses? Right. Um, uh, in the closet. Right. Uh, but, what if you can't stop, but what if you can't stop? Even if you want to make it more subtle, man, look, look, I've been in this game a long time. OK. And I know that I have you guys respect. You're hearing the things and I know you guys are, are sober a long time, too. But when we really, really start to look at what is really going on here as a Zen meditator. And we can talk about what that means, but it's basically, you know, sit still, be present, watch your mind, right? You start to see the addict, the mind itself is an addict. The mind itself has addict nature. That's, that's a pretty good line. I should put that in a book because we talk about Buddha nature. Does the dog have Buddha nature? Well, the mind has addict nature for real, you know? So what are we doing? You know, what are we doing if we're sober? How can we really define, ultimately to, to define sobriety, you know, means to be free of the obsession with my own, I don't know, sense, of, let's call it the shame core. You guys can relate to the shame Absolutely. core. I, I don't even need to ask you. Mm -hmm. I already know you're Absolutely. here with me. You know, we, we got shame core. I can, I'm actually from a brain science perspective. I am actually addicted. My, my, my little cell receptors are actually, you know, attaching uh, on an addictive level to these experiences of stress, to these experiences of distress, to the oxy um, is the oxytocin is the stress one in the neurotransmitter in the brain that's caused in this, you know, you become addicted to the stress, you know, addicted to the addiction, addicted to the process of being in a frenzy to compulsively heal your suffering. Right, like so I can or acclimated to it, you know, like that's why I think when we start having some life change and thoughts and beliefs and attitudes are changing and we start to experience some joy in our life um, mm. or, or get some healthy relationships in our life. Like we can, we can have the tendency to self-sabotage. Right. We kind of flip out. It kind of triggers a, that fight or flight because we mm. don't know how to deal with positive. You know, we've, we've become acclimated to the stress, you know, we become acclimated to it and we become addicted to it. So from a Buddhist, so let me go, this is just a good time to say, to answer your question. Like as you asked in the beginning of the podcast, you know, Buddhism and addiction, Buddhism and recovery, how can it enhance it? Here's the thing. I've been on this. This is like, to me, a moment of clarity that I had, I don't know how many years ago, but I'm still on this because it's super fascinating. Okay. Attachment is the root of all evil in Buddhism. Okay. Attachment just simply means holding on to, clinging, not letting go of, being obsessed with, repeating it, returning to it, coming back to it, not, not stopping it, not being able to talk, going into distress without it, you know? So attachment, you know, and this is a whole thing. I've got a whole new book on this, but 
you know, a healthy attachment, great. You got a caregiver that's sane. They let you explore. You're an independent person, but you know, mommy's still there. Your attachment comes out secure. You've got what's called secure attachment. You got the different kind of mommy, the one that's not there, the one that beats you, the one that has, you know, whatever kind of drama going on, this and that. You wind up insecure attachment. You're trying to go get mommy's attention all the time. You can't get it. She's too busy doing what she's doing. Then you got the other one. Mommy was a little bit too. And you got this uh, uh, avoidant because the mommy is over there too smothering, you know. So you wind up like, ah, intimacy makes me uncomfortable and you're pushing people away. So you got these three levels of attachment, secure, avoidant, and, and um, um, anxious, right? So that's healthy attachment, but, but that's from a psychology point of view. Then you come right into the Buddhist point of view with attachment as the root of suffering because – I'm trying to get something I don't have. Right. See, here in the Zen space, I'm Zen AF. I got my <laughs> I got my mantra. I got my mudra. I am chilling in my space. You cannot fuck with me. Okay. And every everything you have everything that you need within yourself. How can you possibly what do I need from you? Right. right. Why do I want to be desperate and try to get you to fix me? Right. Amen. Well, give me some substances. Give me some love. Tell me <laughs> I'm okay validate me validate me give me money give me things prop me up somehow and you guys know i can tell you guys are probably in your what mid to early 20s so guys, <laughs> nice i like this guy have, <laughs> you guys have been around a little bit you know what i mean and you start to notice in life <laughs> you start to notice in life that yeah you know when i bang my head against the wall for a good period of years and i'm not getting the results that i want Right. I got to try something different. So basically Buddhism says, look, you know, I'm going to sit still. I'm going to notice my experience and I'm not going to react. I'm just going to be chill. Okay. Now, whatever comes up, I'm going to be nice to other people. I'm not going to be mean and I'm going to go about my business, to try to be of service to others. Well, that sounds a lot like AA to me. Absolutely. You know, that right. sounds a lot like the principles of the 12 steps, you know? So, and I don't know if you guys are AA or NA or what, but I mean, you know, the principles of the 12 steps are the same. The principles, you can kind of interpret those slightly differently and what have you. But the idea of Buddhism is that it tells you, look, you're attached and, 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 and your attachment is causing you suffering. And Rabina, one of my teachers, would always use the chocolate cake example. If chocolate cake was able to, you know, we eat it like we think it's actually going to cure world hunger. You know, we eat it Absolutely. like it's going to heal our wounds of childhood. You know, we eat that chocolate cake like it's going to make us whole. But if chocolate cake were truly the source of happiness, we could simply back a truck up in our front yard here and have it just like download right into my living room. And I'm just going to basically wake up and stick my face in the chocolate cake every day. And I'm going to live in bliss. Everything's yes. going to be great. Of course, that's not the case. After my third piece of chocolate cake, I'm shaking and puking. Right? Yeah. My so stomach hurts. <laughs> so I'm a, but I'm attached to chocolate cake because I feel like chocolate cake in the moment is going to heal my wound. I feel like it's going to, but Zen is the opposite of that. Zen is like, oh, you got chocolate cake. Oh, chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. Look at the shiny. Look at the light on that. Look at that brown. What is brown? Brown. That's a wavelength. Oh, look at that. I kind of smell. I'm feeling a little right in the back and a hole in my. So you're starting, starting to process the experience of the sensations of what would happen when you would compulsively go to that addiction. Mm. And you would compulsively reach out to that addiction and you're pausing and you're giving yourself the opportunity to observe the mechanisms, the mental mechanisms of the mind. And so through this practice of mindfulness, you know, you begin to observe the mechanism 
of what you're doing, what you're reaching for and what you're grasping for. And when we grasp and we squeeze, that becomes addiction, right? I'm desperate. Give me that hit from that crack pipe. Give me that hit from that uh, jug of booze. You know, give me that whatever it is. Like I, I, I'm a dying man and you've got the life preserver or I'm out of air and I just open my mouth. You know, that act of desperation of like getting that air, that's how I use. Mm-hmm. And when I Absolutely. don't have my drugs and alcohol – this is what I learned in, in 22 years sober again now, 22 years sober. So let's talk about that. So you relapse at 10 years sober. How long yeah. does it take you to get sober? Again? I mean, a couple of years, you know, I went back and forth. I'd get six months, nine months, 30 days, whatever. Sure. Um, and that kind of thing. Now, I don't, I didn't, and I don't. That was 1996. And I didn't at the time change my sobriety date or feel that I wasn't sober because I did the LSC experience and I still don't. I still wouldn't I still wouldn't change the sobriety date based on that if you're taking it with the correct understanding and situation. Now that's a gray area. Your sponsor is not going to tell you to do that. And I'm not <laughs> going to recommend it to you. But I'm not you. I'm me. This is my sobriety. This is my spiritual journey. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I need to do to try to heal. So there's a lot of things that we've learned over the past 30 plus years about this. And, you know, basically the whole principle of Buddhism from the most fundamental basic, if you know nothing about Buddhism, is to be mindful Hmm. and to observe your experience and to not sit there and react and to not reach for the chocolate cake, but to let your mouth water, let, let your mouth you know, let it, let it go dry and then let it pass. And then you sit there going, wow, look at that. The craving has passed and I didn't have any chocolate cake. Whoa. Uh-huh. <laughs> now I've got new insights. So Buddhism takes it. Buddhism takes what we already know, what we already do in addiction recovery, takes that to a new level. So being mindful is really observing yourself. Yes. In your experience. Yeah. And as we practice, and they say practice for a reason, right? Right. To practice mindfulness because it requires practice. Yes. It's nobody's going to be perfect at not reacting. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to make mistakes. You're 100%. See, this is the thing. The first thing you do when you sit to be mindful is go, I'm not doing this right. This is terrible. This is a stupid idea. Who invented this? <laughs> What's on TV? What if I need for you? I got a good call. I got to text somebody. Wait a minute. I think I got a text right now. What's on Facebook? We got social media. We got Trump. Trump's doing about a bunch of shit. Today. What the fuck <laughs> you? So, you know, you're going to sit there and your mind is going to go, right. you know, and you're going to tell yourself you're not doing it right. There's a very strange place that we get to mentally when we meditate for a long time where we can sort of see the whole thing happening. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience, but you can sort of sit and just experience the arising. You know, in Buddhism, we have this you know, notion of emptiness. These are advanced teachings, but then they're also the beginning, the first day of the later levels of teachings. So, you know, like you can start in Buddhism in the very beginning, and eventually get to this topic of emptiness, or you can start at emptiness, and that's where you go from there if you're going into different types of systems. But that's a complicated you know, topic. But So you know, how far yeah. into this recovery yeah. did you find Buddhism and well, 
what interesting why i mean a, a lot of us have heard buddhism before and haven't gone down the road what what motivated you to go down that uh a spiritual well, path i was in santa cruz i had my son who was eight and a girlfriend who was 18 and we basically you know we're living together and i was going to aa and i said man you know I got to go back to that Zen because I feel like that's what I was doing, you know, when all this kind of went south, you know, see, we didn't have, we didn't have any, um, you know what I mean? I mean, it's a weird, it's kind of a sick example, but I mean, you know, they used to do, and I apologize, I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, the, you know, women used to you know, do abortion with a coat hanger, you know, on the kitchen table. I mean, this is mm. where, when it's illegal I and mean, maybe it's still illegal someplace and they still do that. I, I hope not. But, you know, the idea of trying to do that with LSD with 10 years sober is kind of like trying to give yourself an abortion with a coat hanger. You know, you're trying to do something that really requires precision and, you know, cleanliness and a proper process and guidance and support and medication and all these things and experience right? experiences. And, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So basically I was trying to give my, and I never, that's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird example, but honestly it is, you know, because when you go into your Zen space, you're opening up the can of worms, man, to your entire psyche for all of time, not just your current life, but all of your past lives, you're opening up your karmic, your entire karmic history and, you know, you kind of got to be chill. Like you really have to be, you see the pictures of Buddha and he's touching the earth. You know, Buddha's like, I am here in this present moment and I touch the earth. I'm grounded, you know, as I sit and have all of these experiences, I also know who I am. Mm. So you're not swept up in the experience and chasing after the drama and being otherwise caught up. My friend, Steve, the yoga teacher here in San Diego, says you know it's kind of like you're in the middle of this yoga practice and you're sweating and your heart is pounding and you're hot as fuck and you can't even you know and then you know somehow you got to find the calm in the eye of the storm and that's dharma to me see that's yoga see that's buddhism see that's mm -hmm. recovery right mm -hmm. you, you you learn how to be what they called in early recovery for me wearing sobriety like a loose shirt the and serenity we, right we often hear serenity, serenity right yeah, so it's the ability to be serene no matter what arises, whether it's something I can change or something I have to accept. You know, and so Buddhism offers us a way to go into what is, you know, the mechanism of addiction, which is attachment. And I feel that attachment, or rather addiction, is attachment gone wild. It's the same mechanism. It's just a more extreme and severe version of it, right? Mm -hmm. So you do get um you do when you do work with Buddhism. Um, you do get into the, what's called the root of the problem, right? So we're not going to heal the root of the problem in AA. Uh, people in AA are going to be mad at me for saying things like this. You know, you're not going to heal the root of the problem in AA. You're going to be 27 years sober in AA. I'm going to go into a noon meeting. I'm depressed. I just, you know, had my third bad relationship. I'm kind of feeling like sobriety isn't really necessarily that important for me. I just want some relief. I'm getting a little crazy. I'm going to go to a noon meeting. I'm going to go to a noon meeting and you're going to be 27 years sober and you're going to share and you're going to say, my name's Bob and I'm just as fucking crazy as I was the day I walked in here. <laughs> <laughs> I met that guy. Yeah, we've all, anybody that's been to a 12-step meeting has probably met that guy. 
So, you know, I need my situation to be healing and I need the guy with 27 years to be like, Zen as fuck, man. I want that. I've met Tibetan masters. See, Tibetan masters and Thai forest monks and really good yoga teachers and all this, I like better. I'm going to piss people off when I say this. I like better than AA guys because Mm -hmm. when I go to these people, they are chill, man. They're in their space. No, maybe they de- maybe they don't really know what it's like to suck a crack pipe at 4 a.m. and pick up little <laughs> chips of white fucking lint off the kitchen floor. <laughs> They're probably not addicts like me, okay? <laughs> but I got value in the relationship because this person is able to sit in their body and be present to their own experience. This right. person is able to experience like self-acceptance and self-compassion and to teach me some things so it's not just addicts that can teach me something. It's addicts that will truly understand me. If I say, hey, man, I was picking up the Coke off the floor and it was lint. You laugh. Why did you laugh? Because you know. 100%. You did it too. 100%. I've been there, done that, man. We've all done it, man. I'm sitting there <laughs> hugging a toilet with you know, a hooker at you know, 5 o'clock <laughs> in the morning in a bathroom in an apartment of a guy that I don't know. Before I get sober, you know, I'm doing math. I've got my arms around the toilet, you know, I, so. So when you're talking about that, yeah. So when you're talking about that serene space, that, that Zen space, I've, I've heard it described before as being in the very center of that piece Mm. of playground equipment. That's often called a roundabout or a merry-go-round or Mm. a carousel, right? And everything else around you spinning like mad, but you're right in the center and everything's cool, right? Um, and you're able to take it all in, in stride and you can get off of that thing and walk with no problem because you were centered, right? Spiritually. And and one of the things I'll I'll point out is, uh, the big book itself is very adamant about encouraging folks to explore their spiritual journey, right? right? That, that, you know, I, I consider sort of the 12 steps as spiritual training wheels, right? And then I get the ability to be able to explore my spirituality in a way that is meaningful and supportive of my sobriety and recovery. And then it can enhance my sobriety in recovery, but the 12 steps was that gateway that I needed, right? To even entertain that spirituality could be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about it, this has always been this sort of catch 22. I had this kind of discussion with Deepak Chopra probably around 2005. You, you can't fully get, you can't fully abandon this practice of saying, you know, my name's Darren and I'm an addict. Hmm. Um, if I go to my yoga class and they go, Hey, who are you? Oh, I'm Darren. I'm an addict. They're going, why the fuck are you telling me you're an addict for it? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, well, because we all have, uh, you know, we all have a parigraha, you know, that's, that's uh, grasping, you know, it's said the potentially yoga teachers of parigraha, you know, it's really that state of grasping, man. And that's really you know, Buddha called attachment. And, that, and that's really like addiction. And, and, and we're on the same page here. You know, I know you're not an addict like me, but, you know, we are all, you know, beings with, ha- you know, we have attachment and we're going to do this class together. And even though you're not working on, 
your addiction, you know, I'm just like you. No, they're not going to get it at all. But if you know, I go to AA, they're going to get it immediately, but they're going to be all yoga. What the hell are you, George? You're George, the goddamn yoga folks. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 12, Especially, by right. the way, and I love, uh, you know, uh, 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 the uh, AA, uh, but uh, that's probably where you would hear that the most is from an AA oldster, right? And right. what and the hell right. do you need? You know, anyways, for, all, I'm, right? all I'm trying to say is basically what you what I was kind of trying to get to is that you basically, with your, um, you know, with your, uh, uh, we call this thing, it's called, Ken Weber calls this transcend and include. So here's the, here's the topic. You know, I, I, I get rid of, okay, take what you want, leave the rest. That's the topic. Okay. Take what you want, leave the rest. So, Basically, I transcend and include. So if I'm going to go to the evolved spiritual heights of the great spiritual systems of the world, like the AA literature tells us to do, the world's libraries are full of, you know, we, we hope that you go uh, with a long period ahead. you got a lot, a lot of work to do. Matters Talk about matters medical, social, psychiatric, and religious, et cetera, and so forth. And you're going to go out there in the world. And you're going to start studying all these different things and so on and so forth. But you're not going to go to it. Here's the danger. You're not going to go to go, yeah, I became a full, um, oh, I don't know, full Buddhist. I became a full Christian or I did this or I did that. Don't need the AA anymore. That's a thing of the past. No, you can transcend because you're not really going to buy into all of the levels of thinking that you would at the very, very early stages, but you're going to include, you are going to take those things with you, transcend and include. You're going to evolve past it, but you're not going to go past it. You're going to evolve past it, but you're going to hold on to the things that were really, really solid for you. Like, I don't know, for example, don't take nothing today. Hmm. Be sober right. today for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's a good one. I'm powerless right. over it. Once I start the substance, I can't control. That's a pretty good one. Right. Some people now are going to divide right there at that powerless issue. And I've treated that very extensively, actually in compassionate recovery. I treat that extremely detailed about how you identify, you know, but the point being, I can never forget that I'm an addict and I may very easily delude myself into thinking that I'm safe and I'm not safe. And then I wind up in my addiction again. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So somehow I have to be able to be this like Zen master within myself with however many years sober. I got to be sober a while to do this. I got to do some therapy. I got to do some work around childhood issues. You know, I have to deal with my brain chemistry, maybe or maybe not. I need medication. I definitely need a fitness program. I, I definitely need good nutrition. I definitely need to let go of as many addictive substances as possible, as possible. Do you know what I mean? And I'm going to yeah. get into these kinds of things, and I'm going to start to transcend that initial thing, but I'm going to include the things that really are vital to my spirituality and my recovery, but I'm never going to graduate. Here's the problem. If I graduate, you can tell, I go like this, hey, guys, I'm sober now 23 years. I've done my Buddhism. And I don't need that AA no more because I got the Buddha. Now the Buddha, you know, is real serene. You look at mm -hmm. him right there. He's real serene. I'm, I'm just like that. right? I, I picture a cowboy that. Buddhist now with that voice. <laughs> I love it. That needs to be a cartoon. But basically, oh, yeah. if, you, if you forget who you are, it's very, very easy for the addict mind, which is cunning, baffling, and powerful, to come, on, uh, come up with a good reason to put you in a slippery situation. So, Darren, I'm glad you mentioned a few things that I want to highlight. We've talked yeah. about this a lot on the on the show. A, a good 
physical fitness program a good and, and what I mean by that is find something that you like that is also active and do that regularly right that yeah. will do tr that will that will go uh, that will help your recovery in tremendous ways also as you said the therapy a lot of us have had those adverse childhood experiences a lot of us have had negative experiences or traumatic experiences later on in life and, and some of us have both right and therapy is extremely valuable in being able to move through those experiences in a meaningful and healthy way it, it, along with our program of recovery also i would add more things to that you know i think that it's it's for one thing it's very important i've been in this i don't know 35 some years and I've heard I just heard it a couple days ago. I just heard it probably two days ago. Well, yeah I mean, I, I drive uber so I get a guy in my car. Well, Darren, you know, I'm also an alcoholic. Oh, how long are you sober? Oh, four months, but I can't reach my sponsor. He's so busy Well, look, you know, I've written some books on this. Here's where I look at it. It's called a management team I don't know get a group Get five people. I'm calling it circle of safety in the compassionate recovery program that I wrote for this new book um, circle of safety, you know, you're going to get a, because you can't just rely on the one guy. The one guy's going to, you know what I mean? He's going to be busy. He's got kids. He's got a life in sobriety. He may also have mood swings. You know what I mean? So I need a team. And Absolutely. I, call, I call on my team. And when I get, when I don't get one, I get the other, that's you right. know, and that's got a network, man. If we don't build a network, then we're trying to, yeah, you, you pick people that Absolutely. You, make the, you make them your pillars and you can't have your, your recovery cannot be contingent on any person, place, or thing, because then what happens if they fall, or they get cancer, or they die in a car crash, you know, or they treat you like shit because they have a mood swing, you know, right. you're going to feel devastated. So you get a group yeah. of people, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Totally. And it's like, well, my sponsor's too busy. Well, then call the other guy, you know, hmm. call the person that's not even in AA, go have coffee. Go to a yoga class. I don't know. Go for a run. I'm just saying. So what? So basically, the thing is that here's what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying in my life and in my recovery, and with these two books this year, is that you know the recovery um, process and the addiction process are like we've taken these and 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 we sort of said yes, I know what it is. And now I'm no, now I'm closed off to new information, and and now what I'm saying is that okay, let's have a question mark. This is also a Zen practice, and that's just one kind of Buddhism. But the practice of being of just having the question mark, just being curious and just being open to receive. It's not it's not me knowing and getting in the way of myself. This is just me being open, you know, and trying to understand that you know addiction isn't just once I stop taking alcohol and cocaine and these kind of things, you know, my, my whole process, my makeup, my, my everything, my mind as a conscious being is an addict already just based on this, what we know about Buddhism already. So if I take out the substance, that thing that I'm locking onto that chocolate cake, I need what AA says a sufficient substitute and vastly more than that. Right. Well, I have one. It's called the breath. It's right here, right now. It's always here. It's never going anywhere. And when it does, I won't care because <laughs> I won't be <laughs> right. here. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So, you know what I mean? Buddhism in its essence, you know, you can study for decades. You can study for lifetimes. You can master many systems. 
and all sorts of things. But if you're just going to be present in the body to what is, and I'm going to add this, attend to what is with compassion. Mm. I think that is such an important piece. And I love the fact that you're writing a book about this compassionate recovery, because I think that's a struggle for so many of us that are either in recovery, new in recovery, contemplating recovery, that and that self-compassion is, um, uh, is a very difficult thing for many of us. Well, look, I was in a self-compassion program called Mindful Self-Compassion um, about a year ago. It was, I think, February it started. And we were, it was an online group with a therapist from, I don't know, like the Netherlands or something. And we're sitting there and we're doing practices, you know. And suddenly, Darren Littlejohn, best-selling author of Buddhism, decades sober, decades of sobriety, pretty smart guy, kind of in the know about a lot of things. I had a fucking brick wall, man. I had a fucking brick wall. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. I hear the words self-compassion. I hear the instructions, love yourself. That's where it stops. My brain, I realized, does not do self-compassion. Mm, huh. Because of my, my A score is eight. That's very high. It could be nine if I were not, you know, depending on how I judge it, right? So my A score, it means probably the chances are I'm going to become an addict. I'm going to have stress disorders. I'm going to have hypertension. I'm going to have suicide. I'm going to have all these kind of problems. Although if you have an A score, you can still be a high achiever. I picked up a guy the other day and I was talking to him because I always talk, my, my Uber passengers are the people who help me flesh out my book ideas, right? As I try to make it make sense. Well, what's your book about? Well, I'm trying to say it as fast as I can in two sentences and right. really try to get my ideas sharp. Try to explain it to the casual observer. What is compassion recovery? What is the 12th step Buddhist? You know? The elevator pitch. And try to do the elevator pitch in a very succinct kind of way, you know? Right. And um, anyways, you know, I'm going down a lot of different, you know, kind of, kind of pathways here, but the idea basically of what, of what I'm trying to say is that, you know, yes, attend mindfully, but then also attend mindfully with compassion. And then when you take that and you try to convey that back to yourself, to mm -hmm. self-compassion, it's, it's not natural for me. Right. So I had to train myself. I've been Buddhist for like three decades. I mean, mm -hmm. I had to sit and train myself on these practices to learn how to do what is called self-compassion. Last year. And, and again, we we Last hear year. the word practice. It's right. dose-related. That was practice. the thing I wanted to say. That's what I wanted to say earlier. It's dose-related. So as addicts, this is a perfect term for us. We do understand dose-related. But the idea with our spiritual practice, and with these, I call these contemplative practices, right? Any kind of prayer and meditation, you know, whatever. This um, um, gets better the more we do it, right? And it, you know, it I, I think about this and the whole concept of like, you know, being mindful of yourself, but and and what's going on around you. But no matter what you're attending to, to do it with compassion, it's like I always have to come back to the fact that this is like a lifelong learning process, right? right. And it's growth, and it's growth. And every time it doesn't work. 
and it's not going to work. You know, there's going to be all these times when it doesn't work right for me. Um, can I, can I learn a lesson from that? You know, because that's where we develop, right. And change and, and man, I'll tell you what, cause it's easy to get hung up on that failure. Right. And like, take it in a negative context, beat yourself up, whatever, or, or you can, learn a lesson from it and then it's a blessing in your life you know and it's and it's an opportunity that helped you grow and learn more about yourself in a deeper level and i try to i try to remind myself that that it's a lifelong process so when i mess up because i'm really that guy that just i will beat the shit out of myself over some mistakes that i make you know but see here's where i want to help you this is where i want to help you with my experience right because i already know that and what I want, what I want is for guys like us. And, you know, I'm saying guys, it's like three guys here talking, but I'm not trying to be, you know, like overly masculine or deny the feminine or, or be rude <laughs> or anything like that. But I'm just saying guys. And I, I mean, everybody, you know, but you right. know, for, for say for people like us, you know, the ability to pause right there and to go right to that feeling and embody that feeling and to put your hand right on your heart, you know, we could do it right now. I'll invite you guys to try this with me if you want. You just put your hand right on your heart and you say the thing that you want to hear most from other people. Now, for me, that's one of the things I want to hear most is you are kind. I really want to be seen as kind. So I put my hand on my heart and I go like this. You are kind. I am kind. It doesn't matter if I say you are or I am. I mean, it, they're kind of both good. You know, I am kind. I am kind. And I go like this. I belong here. Mm. I'm home. Jason, what did you say to yourself? Uh, I guess like, I love you no matter what. Mm. Um, I feel like in my life, people, you know, if, if I hit a snag or, or a rough patch and uh, my mood swings get the best of me, that it turn, turns into uh, the, that wedge is automatically created. And then there's all this tension and anxiety and weird. It just gets weird, you know, in relationships. And it's like, you know, I think anybody that knows me or takes the time to get to know me should know that, like, my intentions are good. And, you know, and. I feel like as a people, we should be able to be understanding the fact that other people have hard times sometimes. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. Now three things, four things are happening right now. One, your tone of voice shifted. Totally. Totally shifted into a softer you. Totally. And, and the, the viewers, you know, the listeners can't see, but this is a big burly masculine dude here. I'm looking at on the, on the video, right? You guys can't <laughs> tell, but this is like a, lumberjack kind of guy okay he's a very <laughs> very masculine guy right and his and, his, and your tone just changed like right into super super soft and compassionate and gentle i heard you being gentle with you now i want people to learn that skill i want people to be aware of that skill and start working on it, even though you're not really going to get super good at this kind of thing for a while, maybe a long right. time. But start day one, please. Yep. I want to walk in. Yep, Just put your hand on your heart, and I'll invite you all to do this. And put your hand on your heart and say what you want to hear most. I'll share what I 
told myself, yeah, which was, you, you are loved. Mm. I said, you are loved and everything will be okay. Mm. Yeah. And, and because I'm constantly afraid, I think deep down inside that maybe it won't be. Well, look, there's right. a good reason for that. If you have adverse childhood experiences, because right. it wasn't okay. Right. It was okay when you got home from school for that 90 minutes before dad got home from the train and then you heard the footsteps coming up the stairs and you know he may have been drinking and you may or may not be beaten or molested today. I'm sorry, you're not going to grow up feeling like it's okay. Right. You know what I mean? So there's a reason and I'm not being bitter and I'm not trying to, you know, blame the people and not take responsibility. Absolutely not. You know, I'm just saying, have compassion for the fact that as a little child, you were in a situation that was extremely threatening to you and your brain didn't develop properly. And um, you developed a bunch of skills that were maybe helpful at the time, but not so helpful now, like using drugs or cutting or acting out. So anyways, we can be, we can be super Buddhist as addicts day one. Boom, walk right in to your Buddhist center, wherever you are. And that's a great, great entry. So I want to explore Buddhism, and I want that to be a path to be able to enhance my recovery. How do I do that? What do I do? Yeah, right now, um, write this down for yourself. Just get a pencil and a piece of paper and write down for yourself for the next 30 days what you're going to do. And you're going you're gonna to say, okay, let's see. I've got five minutes in my day. I'm going to start my morning with five minutes of silent meditation. I'm just going to sit still and observe my breath for five minutes. I'm going to put on my timer on my uh, iPhone or, or whatever, and um, just simply sit and be still five minutes every day. You're going to put that on your calendar, and then you're going to check it every time you do it. So um, I'm involved in a, in, a, in a spiritual order that I'm just starting to become involved with. And one of the things that they said that the person has to do to raise from one level to the next degree is they have to do a spiritual practice every day for a year and they have to keep very careful records of it. I thought that was such a brilliant thing to do because when you write it down, then you're going to be able to go back through and experience your thoughts and feelings around that for, you know, over the course of a year. And to really, and you know, we say this in AA, if you write down everything that you wish you had for yourself today, you'll find in a year that you should change yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, so, uh, totally. I, so, so basically if you want to do Buddhism, all I want you to do is watch your breath for five minutes a day for 30 days and write down your experience and that's so I do it for five minutes in the morning. Yeah. And then after that five minutes, I'm going to write down my experience around yeah. it. Right? Yeah. And if something pops up during the day. So this is the, the, so the, the idea is that you develop a discipline and you develop a, 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 um, a pattern for yourself. And if you goof, if you can do more than five minutes, do 20, that'd be great. Now, I remember my Zen teacher, Joko Beck, telling me, I said, well, I'm going to do an hour a day. And she says, no, just do 20. Relax. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. T total, by the way, total addict behavior. So, you know, and that's, that's the beautiful, you know, that is really the beautiful thing about yoga as a moving meditation is that all the years of sitting still in Zen, and I can see that my entire, you know, 
if you if you read uh, Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. That's the Bible on PTSD and trauma. You know, you read this. He talks about how the and other people, you know, anthropologists talk the bipodal. You know, the whole structure of our anatomy and our brain, everything is meant to propel us forward in time and space to go after the goal. Okay, it is not to sit and be present in the present moment. So. Mm -hmm. What we've got as the evolution of, of consciousness as in a human being is that we can use our propelling forward motion, motor, activity, robot, machine, body thing to get the things we need to survive and build ourselves a meditation hut so that we can sit and contemplate. This is the evolution of consciousness. This is why humans have a, an advantage in a Buddhist sense. The precious human rebirth is because we have the opportunity to sit, to receive teachings, to do practice, to be aware of ourselves, whereas a, a, a mouse, for example, doesn't have that awareness. They've only got the instinct to survive and run and get food and make babies and, and all that. So we have the ability to get food, make babies, and create a meditation hut for ourselves so that we can chill and contemplate, yeah, our navel, but contemplate our experience and to truly learn to embody our experience in this moment and to have compassion and to go like this, just go like this, just go like this. Anytime during the day, man, you want to be Buddhist, you want to be in recovery, you want to be spiritual, you want to be a better person, you want to heal from trauma, throughout the day, just do this. Just put your hand on your heart, look at that other person and go like this, me too. And I don't mean that as a thing on the me too movement. I just mean me too. It's called common humanity, okay? So what happens there is in the mindful self-compassion training, we learn about this thing called common humanity. It's part of Buddhist training, okay? What it means is that all beings suffer. Boom! That's all you need to know. All beings suffer. That's all you need to know. Mm. Now, if you know that, are you going to be a dick? Are you going to be a dick? Are you going to look at that person in the, in the, in the grocery store and they, uh, they're cranky and they're smelly and they said something mean to you and they took your place in line and you're going to go, you're going to go like this. You're going to go, you asshole. Who the fuck do you think you, do you know who I am? And I'm going to set you straight and I'm going to go opposition to you. You're my enemy. Or am I going to look at that person and go pause just a second and go like this. You could just not even say anything. You could just put your hand on your heart and you could just exhale, me too. Or exhale, wow, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us beings. We're out here, we're sensitive blobs of, of uh, tissue and nerves and we can feel everything and we can get hurt and we can get killed and we can get sick so easily. We're so vulnerable out here in the world. Wow, man, bro, True. me True. too. Me and you, common humanity. Look, that is a practice that is taken out of the context of Buddhism, taken out of the context of any religious dogma. It's a principle, like we talk about our principles in AA. We practice these principles in all of our affairs. Buddhism has principles. You don't have to be a Buddhist. You can just watch your breath. You can just say me too. You can just be mindful, and you're going to be like a thousand times better off than you were. But you have to do it in the context of recovery with the support around you. And it would be great if you could find a buddy to do it with. If you're in Indiana, I get a lot of emails for a long time from people who are like, yeah, I know, but I'm in Indiana. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, well, you can, they breathe in Indiana too. Right. And right. you can save your little pennies they there breathe. from your job. And you can go over there to um, 
you know, Virginia where they have a retreat, you know, or wherever the hell you're going. You can go to uh, one of those uh, centers there, Kripalu, uh, Esalen, any of those centers all over the eastern seaboard. They're all over. Go to a retreat. Meet people. Then come back to your 12-step and do your thing. Maybe you get a buddy and you say, let's do this every Saturday for an hour and then we'll have tea. And it's open to people in recovery or maybe we want it to be open to everybody. I don't know. We can decide. So you start to have a meditation circle and you start to make meditation part of your life so so that it becomes something that you are all the time that you're not just, Oh, I've got to go home at seven 30. I've got to meditate now. Right. right. But it's more like wherever you find yourself, you're being present. You're being compassionate. If you did one of these things once in a while, it would completely alter your course and direction in life and where you wind up 10 years from now. If you did a little bit of this 1% of this stuff changes everything. So imagine if you could say, Develop a daily presence practice, being in your body for five minutes a day. You do that for 30 days. You find a buddy. You do it once on Saturday. Pretty much start talking about it. Get a group together. Eventually, over the years, people are doing mindfulness. People are doing compassion. People are more comfortable in their own skin. There's absolutely nothing bad that can come of this, right? Right. The, the, the greatest thing that has happened to me today for sure and probably this week, Darren, is uh, participating in your amazing stream of consciousness for the better part uh, of an hour. It's been tremendous. I've learned so much. I, I took notes that I am going to share with all of you in the show notes. So take a look at the show notes. You're going to hear, you're going to see the five minutes of meditation in the morning uh, to write it down, to do that for 30 days. There's a couple of things we can do when we put our hand on our heart that are going to make a big difference for you if we just try it. And not only that, uh, one thing that I've heard over and over and over in the 175 episodes that we've done is breath, 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 you know, and and how transformative and how um, uh, transcendent Mm. breath can be. It's like a reset button, man. You know, when you're freaking out, just focus on your breath and it makes it hard to focus on anything else because you're focusing on your breath. Well, you know, I was in treatment. When I I had relapsed with the decade there, I went to the meadows in Arizona with Pia Melody and her people. And, um, and, um, um, oh, what the heck is her name? Uh, The other lady uh, therapists there who wrote a bunch of books. Um, and I went up to her at, at a conference last year, Claudia Black. And I said, Claudia, when I got sober in the 80s, you were already a famous author in recovery. And um, I've been sober a long time. I'm, I'm sober over 20 years right now. And I want you to know that hearing you speak this morning, it was like seeing the Dalai Lama to me. I mean, I was spiritually moved just because this lady was around 20 plus years ago, writing her books on trauma and addiction and that sort of thing, you know, and, and basically, you know, just learning to do these tools a little bit at a time and learning to understand the, the peace and the role of trauma 
in life and learning to lower our expectations of our demands that we make on ourselves, you know, mm. and to be really gentle with ourselves, no matter where we are in the path and being able to share that with other people and say to the other people, Hey, me too. Hey, I know. Isn't that what we do in 12 step? Absolutely. Walks in the do. door. Me too. Hey, me too. 100%. Yeah, I know. Yep. So you can do that to the guy at home Depot who's right. really stupid and he's taking a long time and he's counting <laughs> on his pennies. Who pays with pennies at home Depot? You idiot. What are you doing? No, 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 Darren. You're come on, bro. You're as an addict, you're alienated in the universe. You think you're special. You built yourself walls. You're hiding behind this fortress of fe- fortress of fear. Why don't you turn to that guy right over there? Why don't you look right, just look right at him right now and go like this? Me too. Yeah, mm. it's tough, isn't it? Mm. Man, life's a fucking wow. Yeah, I'd give right. that guy a hug if I could. Well, you know what? It changes my just like that, man. It changes everything as soon as I start to do that common humanity piece. But I need the mindfulness piece to bring my mind there. I need the compassion piece to know what to do when I bring my mind there. And then I can start doing these other practices. And I've written extensively about this for for this next book coming out next year, Compassionate Recovery. But there's a lot that we can do. And really, if you took one of these little things and just added it to your recovery, and that's all you ever did, five minutes of meditation in the morning and the night, I, if you talk to me in a year, you shortchange yourself, I promise. Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Way Out podcast. Uh, the book is The 12-Step Buddhist Enhanced Recovery from Any Addiction, and it's updated and it's enhanced, so there's an additional, so make sure to get the updated and expanded. We'll have a link for that as well in the show notes. Darren, a quick hit to close. You mentioned The Body Keeps Score as a book that was important to you in your recovery. Uh, What was the most important book that you've read in your recovery? In my life, it might be Chuck Chamberlain, A New Pair of Glasses. Mm. I've heard it. A lot of people say that. He he was a spiritualist who was also long-term in recovery and basically trained all the circuit speakers who basically give us our AA legends, you know? Right. So Chuck Chamberlain was like a real guru behind the scenes of AA. And uh, and his book in 1984, when I read it, he died like right when I got sober. So he he basically probably changed my life more than and then what's the title of your new book that you got your writing? Compassionate Recovery. Compassionate Recovery. So stay tuned for that. Darren, thank you so much for being a part of the Way Out podcast, brother. Let's not be strangers. Okay, yeah, you guys. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for being a part of the Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. 
See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.